So welcome everybody to today's Sutta class. It's a continuation on that manuscript which I call the Word of the Buddha. And for those of you who forget the last time I did make the announcement that the, the disciples over in Hong Kong have asked me and gained permission to print this out, basically to have like a hard copy which we can distribute to people. So that'll be coming soon. In the meantime, this is available on the website uh, for you to uh, download and see and uh, make the best use of. And again, to understand where this came from, we had to have obviously the teachings of the Buddha. And when we have these teachings, we do have them translated into many languages. But the English translations, you always find no fault with the Dhamma, but sometimes the way it is translated, and sometimes the last translation was done such a long time ago, and it's uh, very helpful to translate them in a accurate but also meaningful way. And so often there are some words which are a bit strange, some of the uh, metaphors are a bit obtuse, it's very hard to actually to find what does it really mean. And it's not that difficult to get different metaphors, different similes, but still keep as close as you can to the original using more, better words and thereby having it more powerful. And one of the things I remember when I first read the suttas is how much repetition there was. And if you can remember that these suttas, teachings of the Buddha, in their early days were just recited. They weren't written down in books, they were recited and learned by heart. And because of that, it does help to have repetition. It makes it easier to actually to learn and remember. But of course, now we have books that it's much easier to take out some of those repetitions and without uh, diminishing in any way the accuracy of what is explained, we can get a much more powerful teachings. So that's one of the reasons why these are translations which I did. And hopefully if you find any fault with them, please let me know. But I found them much more meaningful and powerful. And still being not my translation, it's not my Dhamma, this is the Dhamma of the Buddha. And as it is the teachings of the Buddha, I usually insist on doing the Namo Tassa, first of all, as a mark of respect. Namo Tassa Bhagavato Alahato Sammasambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Alahato Sammasambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Alahato Sammasambuddhasa Buddhang Dhammang Sankhang Namasami So in this part of the word of the Buddha uh, teachings, uh, as part of the seventh factor of the Eightfold Path, the Sammasati, having explained 
and talked about the four, what I call, focuses of mindfulness. Prefer that to the foundations of mindfulness because the focuses of mindfulness indicate where that mindfulness should be, where that mindfulness should be directed. And after that, there is a sutta uh, which expands on the meaning of mindfulness, Anapanasati Sutta. And one of the powerful statements of the Anapanasati Sutta is that anyone who completes the uh, training in Anapanasati, what we usually call the 16 steps of Anapanasati, will also fulfill, complete the four focuses of mindfulness, the four satipatthana. And what that does, I keep on uh, emphasizing this, because that actually shows that what many people feel is samatha practice, like anapanasati, also completes what many people feel as satipatthana, which is the four focuses of mindfulness. The two are not distinguishable. And in that Anapanasati Sutta, when it starts talking about how Anapanasati completes the Satipatthana, then it goes on to see how the Satipatthana completes the seven enlightenment factors. Remember the Eightfold Path is a path. And when you have those uh, eight factors of the Eightfold Path, where does that path lead? And of course that path leads to enlightenment and the understanding, the knowledge of enlightenment. That's almost like the path and the goal. And sometimes, often, that goal is represented by the seven enlightenment factors. And so very often, as in here, they say, once you do the four uh, focuses of mindfulness, that leads to the seven enlightenment factors which leads you know, to release from samsara. You're an arahat, you're fully enlightened. So today we come on to the four focuses of mindfulness, how they complete the seven enlightenment factors. So here we go. How do the four focuses of mindfulness developed and cultivated complete the seven enlightenment factors? And one. Now, of course, it's seven enlightenment factors, but because that I had the, uh, the freedom to uh, present it, to format it in how we'd normally format it uh, in English one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And that is not there in the suttas, that is not there in most translations of the suttas. So you see the one, two, three, four, that's not in the original Pali. I put in there because it makes life much easier when you're studying these suttas. So what are these seven enlightenment factors? One, when you are mindful of the body, having restrained the five hindrances, energized, fully aware of the purpose and mindful, on that occasion, steady mindfulness is established in you. Please have a look at that statement, steady mindfulness is established in you. 
on whatever occasion steady mindfulness is established in you, on that occasion the mindfulness enlightenment factor is aroused in you. You develop it and by development it comes to fulfillment in you. So first of all, just being mindful is not enough. It has to, number one, be steady mindfulness. Not just mindfulness here and then mindfulness there. It has to be on an object long enough that you can penetrate into it. And I'm going to do this simile here. And many of you have seen this before, probably every other couple of weeks. What is it I'm holding up now? What is this? What else? What else? What else? What else? What else? Yes, very good. <laughs> See, this is, this is where you have an object, you're mindful of it, but when it's steady, you can see all other aspects of it, many other uses, many other parts of it, which when you just think it's a gong-bonger, you don't see so clearly. But when you stay on something, aware of it, steady mindfulness, it does the purpose of exploring it, going right into it, and seeing parts of this which you never expected to see before. That's why the mindfulness has to be steady. Number two, it's not just steady mindfulness is established, you develop it. And by development it comes to fulfillment in you. And I think many of you, maybe on retreats, you may have experienced you know, really full mindfulness, very strong and stable. I just happened to be talking to uh, I forget who it was, somebody a few days ago, and they were telling me about the experience which many of you may have when you're in, say, like a car accident, or like me falling off a cliff, or thinking you're going to die. And sometimes in those occasions, strange, but this is how I remember it, time slows down and things get distorted you know, in time. You can see so clearly. It's like everything is going slow and you perceive so much. It's like your mindfulness gets um, amplified. And it's not just that the mindfulness gets amplified, you see so much, but also you can remember that very easily. This is what happens when mindfulness starts to uh, get developed and it starts to come to fulfillment. You really are aware, fully aware, and things are just slow and full. You start to see things you've never seen before. And to me that's so much fun. We come to the fun part later on in the factors of enlightenment but just the fact that you feel like really alive. Maybe your energy levels in your body may not be strong, you may be old, like many of us here, <laughs> but nevertheless, your mind is just so penetrating. You can see something and see so much more in it. It's 
And that is no part of the development of mindfulness. That's one of the reasons why I say just ordinary mindfulness is not enough to see super-ordinary dhammas. You have to develop the really strong mindfulness, steady and penetrating. And then it comes to fulfillment in you, to see how mindful you can really be. When you are thus mindful, you explore the Dhamma with wisdom. And of course this was a long search before you could find a decent word for like what some people say contemplating or thinking or I much prefer the word explore. And the reason I prefer the word explore because it doesn't so much involve the rational mind of concepts and relationships between concepts and inferences and things like that. It is like with this mind which is willing to explore, investigate, to see things you've never seen before. And please remember, if you did understand the Dhamma, there'd be no point to practice this, to be fully enlightened. Here you're seeing things you haven't seen before, understanding things you have not penetrated yet, and sometimes being faced with you know, clear evidence of things which you can sometimes cause fear in people, simply because, wow, is this what the Buddha's really talking about? but you have to have that courage to explore. So I prefer, instead of thinking or contemplating or investigating, the word exploring. You know, it gives to mind those stories I remember reading as a young boy, of people going into far off lands. You know, into, they don't know why they called it that, like darkest Africa, why well, it was dark. But you had to be courageous. You never knew what you were going to find around the next bend of the path. But you were willing to explore to find the truth. So the exploration is, I think, a word which has a much closer meaning to what we're doing here with the mindfulness. When you are mindful, you can explore the gongbonger. And you see things you haven't seen before. On that, whatever occasion, abiding thus mindful, you explore Dhamma with wisdom. On that occasion, the exploration of Dhamma, enlightenment factor, is aroused in you. And you develop it, and by development, it comes to fulfillment in you. This is not just learning from books. The learning from books gives you like the map, yeah, but the actual exploration is done by you going there. Then you understand what those words and ideas in the maps actually mean. So you explore the Dhamma with wisdom. Whatever occasion, abiding thus mindful, you explore the Dhamma with wisdom. On that occasion, the exploration of Dharma, enlightenment factor is aroused in you. And you develop that skill, being able to have strong mindfulness, look at something and penetrate in there and experience, see, know things you've never seen before. And it comes to fulfillment in you. Now when you explore Dhamma with wisdom 
and embark upon a full inquiry into it, unflagging energy is aroused. It's very hard to find a word for that strong but peaceful energy. Unflagging is not a very good English word, but nevertheless, that's the best you can come up with. On whatever occasion that type of energy is aroused as you explore the Dhamma with wisdom, and what actually does that mean? Sometimes when you have strong mindfulness and you start to you know, really be able to penetrate into things, you can explore them, it becomes fascinating. It becomes so interesting that you know, the interest, the involvement in that investigation becomes a source of energy. A lot of times we get dull and are slothful because we get bored. And we get bored because our mindfulness is very dull. We can't see the beauty and sometimes the excitement, to put it bluntly, about you know, seeing new things and exploring new things and being able to uncover things you've never ever seen before or in ways you've never experienced before. And that becomes, again, fascinating. Uh, just to try and give some examples, I don't know why this example comes up, but here it comes. Please, I apologize for them being personal examples, but simply that those are the ones closest to me, which I know are true and I can explain at length because I experienced them. And that was, you know, the time when just sitting in a Zen monastery in the north of England. Many of you know the story that they were teaching a type of meditation I'd never done before, which was just looking at, with eyes open, on a whitewashed wall. What other thing should I do? They never gave me any more instructions, that was it. So you're sitting there, you know, eyes open, just watching a whitewashed wall. My advantage was I still had done lots of you know, ordinary breath meditation. I knew how to keep my mind reasonably still and stop thinking. And that was when, as many of you heard me say before, the wall vanished. Your eyes were wide open. And then the wall in front of me just disappeared out of existence. There was nothing left. Now, of course, if you're not courageous, that's sort of, you're fully mindful, you're exploring into this, and something happens which I never expected to happen. And it was just kind of confronting at first. But at least I was uh, courageous enough, you know, just to let it be and not interfere with it, not go backwards. This is weird. What's happening? It's you know, such a simple phenomenon to explain afterwards. But when it happens, you don't expect it to happen. Of course, it can be scary to people. And all it is, is just teaching you about the nature of the brain and the mind. It only notices things which um, change. If they stay constant, they disappear. It should never have scared me at all, or never surprised me. It's just basic understanding of how the brain works. A constant sound in the background disappears after a while. I often use that when I'm meditating. The feeling I have in my buttocks right now, pressed against the cushion, 
Of course, that will disappear after a few minutes when I'm meditating. It's constant, it's not threatening. And that was just like the vision of a whitewashed wall. It never changed, it wasn't threatening. So after a while, just my mind, my sense of sight turned off. It's much easier to understand these days, of course, because we have similes of the computer. If it stays still long enough, the screen turns off. But that was kind of an example of exploring the Dhamma. And uh, when you full inquiry into it, it becomes fascinating. And that fascinating part of it was the source of the energy. This was really interesting. And a lot of times I remember that I used to be a school teacher before I became a monk. And as a school teacher, sometimes you're teaching the same class but to a different uh, group of children. You had to give it some energy, some oomph, get interested in it yourself. And that interest would inspire the children as well. And they'd sort of get really into what was to them a fascinating journey into something as dull as maths. You get inspired yourself and then you can take that inspiration and you were fascinated by it. So that's exploring the Dhamma with, with wisdom, embarking a full inquiry into it, and energy is aroused. And when that energy enlightenment factor is aroused in you, and you develop it, by development it comes to fulfillment in you. Now energy, first of all, the energy of this path of meditation and exploration, it is not a restless energy. There's so many different types of energy which you can experience in your life. And this is the energy which is, I kind of like the idea of interest. This is weird, this is important, this is, so you have no lack of uh, oomph in your exploration. You're not scared, you don't go back, which you're really interested in what's going to happen next, what you're going to find next. I don't know, sometimes, because I don't watch the TV, but they used to have, someone told me these shows where they give you a place to go and search for something. And you know, you have to get there as soon as you possibly can. Is that right? Okay, but that was, the people get interested in that. To me, I said, what do you want to go to that place for? What do you want to go to this place for? Because it was just fascinating for them, they had huge amounts of energy into this. So that interest, that fascination, gives rise to that energy. So after a while in meditation, when you really start getting into it, the energy really comes up. And it's really hard to have things like uh, sloth, or I'm tired, I'm bored. When it's done properly, wow, this is interesting. And sometimes you can't find enough time. That's why sometimes people stay up all night meditating. Not because they're trying to get somewhere, they're really interested. How many times, remember when you were young, it's not that many really young people here, but when you were young you stayed up all night talking with your friends or listening to music or whatever else you got up to in those days. I remember sometimes my mother would say, oh, you're mad, you know, going out to a, 
uh, a music concert at two o'clock in the morning when I was young. But I was interested. The energy was there because, you know, you, you really wanted to experience this. And that's kind of unflagging energy. That was caused by the wrong motivations, but at least you can experience something, what it's like. And now this is the next thing which happens after the energy. Uh, four. When you have aroused energy, unworldly joy arises. On whatever occasion unworldly joy arises, on that occasion the joy enlightenment factor is aroused in you and you develop it. And by development it comes to fulfillment in you. And this was, I don't know about you, but this was really important to me when I started seeing right in the middle of the enlightenment factors was the start of experiencing bliss. Unworldly joy, this is not like the joy of you know, having the Sri Lankan cricket team win a, a match or having Poland win the World Cup. It's not the, <laughs> the happiness, the joy of winning the lotto or something. This is unworldly stuff. Wow, you can feel the energy coming up and with it comes joy and bliss. It's really happy. And that's a wonderful thing to experience, simply because as a monk, I'm committing, committed to this, you know, 100%. And if there's no joy in this monastic life, then some people would say, what are you doing this for, Ajahn Brahm? You must be weird just trying to sort of uh, deny yourself all these joys of life. But I've mentioned to many of you so often you know, I became a monk, I stay as a monk because the joys of you know, these meditation states are way, way better than anything I've ever experienced in the world. It's unworldly joy. It's gorgeous. And you tend, I usually call it as blissing out. And sometimes if you have a partner in life uh, who blisses out when they're meditating, leave them alone, let them enjoy it because it's so beneficial in so many different ways. And when you see other people getting into these beautiful, beautiful meditations with so much bliss, you know that simile which I've given to you before of this Malaysian girl getting into the jhana for the first time right at the end of a retreat over in Thailand. And I didn't think she was going to get anywhere. She said she was just killing time a taxi to take her to the airport was going to be late. So she went into the meditation hall and just sat down. Again, killing time, not wanting anything. And then she came out about 45 minutes later and I was sitting on a chair having an orange juice or something. And she came up to me on her knees and I will never forget her face. Ah, oh, oh, oh. Oh, I don't know if I can convey it to you, but it was like you may have a, like a, a daughter falling in love for the first time. Oh, daddy, daddy, oh, you're wonderful. Her bliss was just so palpable. Of course, she just got into a deep meditation for the first time 
and she, she could express it only in one way, just by being silly, <laughs> being much younger than her real age was. But that's, I always remember that, and I always think, what a beautiful expression that is, of the joy which comes from meditation. And that's what's supposed to happen. When you have roused energy, unworldly joy arises. So what, do you do, what should you do? Let go of that joy? Think, oh no, I'm not into joy. On whatever occasion unworldly joy arises, on that occasion the joy enlightenment factor is aroused. And you develop it, you don't get rid of it. And by development it comes to fulfillment in you. you become a happy little Buddhist. And the reason it's important to me, because I don't know about you, maybe you've been brainwashed by me long enough now. I always thought that you weren't allowed to be happy in spiritual life. That no pain, no gain. I don't know who said that stupid word. But nevertheless, to see that joy and see it coming up in you and others is a very beautiful thing to behold and it's part of the path. Oh yeah. Five. What happens next? Go, yeah, go on. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Sometimes uh, I have seen phenomena or principles, but I think when you use the word explore, would you say the word phenomena more fits in with the, if you look for a better word? Okay, it's a very good question. I did think of saying something about that, but I never did. Uh, I don't like any such translation. It's like there were some words which do not have an adequate translation into English. And at this point, I will pay my respects to Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi, because I remember reading one of his books, and, and he was giving an explanation on and over three or four pages, not just one word, what this idea Dhamma actually means. And it really got me and gave me a very thorough understanding what this word is supposed to be representing. He said Dhamma is looking at this, you might call it phenomena, experience right now, whatever you experience right now, where did this come from? what caused it, its origin, the things which had to be there for this to happen. It's looking at this moment and finding out where this came from. And that has an antonym, in other words an opposite, called atta, A-double-T-H-A. What's the consequence of this moment? Where is this going to lead to? Where this is going to go? So Dhamma is looking at like causality. Where did this come from? Where did you come from, Ananda? What caused you, you know, to be the man you are now? What caused like a sickness to come up? You don't just look at a sickness like a cancer. Why did that cancer come? That's looking at the Dhamma, tracing it backwards to the causes, the origins, where it came from. And any of you who study Buddhism and get sort of an overview of it, you know a lot of times the Buddha's not saying what actually is, but how it came 
to be like this. What you know, most people call the dependent origination of phenomena. Phenomena is this. But why? Where did it come from? How did it arise? Where did you come from? Don't say you were born in Sri Lanka. You're, that's your body, that's not you. So many different lives, different places. Why? And sometimes that understanding how things arise, where they come from, that is more, more important than understanding where they actually are right now. So why are they like this? So thank you for that because I did mention that I think to a talk to the monks recently. And to me that was a very important part of understanding the Buddha's teachings. What does that word actually mean? Okay? Okay. But thank you for that question, that's good. Ah. Now what happens? How do you know it's the right type of joy? Sometimes when you have joy, you know, you feel like dancing up and down. You feel like going, wow, yay! But that's not the unworldly type of joy. When you have aroused, uh, when you have ex experienced unworldly joy, what happens next? Your body and mind become tranquil. And again, wow, this actually says there's a different type of joy. You don't feel you need to do anything. Everything just gets so still. The body becomes tranquil. In other words, you don't need to move. This is where one of the causes for being able to sit meditation for long periods of time. You have this beautiful inspirational joy and everything just is comfortable. It's like your body is satisfied. It doesn't want to go anywhere or do anything. There's no aches or pains. It's just, wow, this is amazing. That joy gives rise to bodily tranquility, but also the mental tranquility as well. You don't need to go and think about what you should do and strive and decide what to do and figure out how to do it, where you need to go. You don't go giving yourself amazing Dhamma talks just to yourself. Have you ever been in that state of meditation where the, the mind becomes so empowered you can give incredible talk to yourself? <laughs> Have you experienced that? You haven't, I, I, Eddie probably has. <laughs> but no, no, I'll just finish off and then I can do the question. This is actually where and the Buddha mentioned this in one of his uh, talks about the, the hindrances, not the hindrances of the five hindrances, the obstacles to meditation, what people think about. And he said the last obstacle, he said the lingering obstacle when everything else has been calmed down, is thinking about Dhamma as an obstacle. And when I first came across that, I said, this must be a misprint. Because sometimes there are misprints, or people do the translation, understand it incorrectly. But then I checked it out, this is not a misprint. It was my misunderstanding. That's what the Buddha said, and it's absolutely accurate. 
And I loved telling that to other very senior monks. So thinking about Dhamma is an obstacle to enlightenment. So how oh, come on, Ajahn Brahm, you can't say that. I, not me said it, the Buddha said it. And then after a while you understand what that actually is. You're getting still and then the mind has a kind of a power to actually to think clearly, to feel, to actually to get some wonderful um, ideas and influences and you think that this is amazing stuff. But you're not still enough yet. I always kind of called it like Mara's last trick. You think you've understood the Dharma, you can see everything and you have great influences but you haven't got still enough yet for the hindrances to totally go. You're thinking about Dhamma rather than seeing it. And that's an amazing sort of little um, uh, insight of the Buddha. But when you really become tranquil with lots of unworldly joy, the mind becomes tranquil too. You're not thinking about Dhamma, you're seeing it. And the two are very different. And anyway, uh, Eddie, what was your question now? No, no, it's okay. I just needed to finish off that. I feel I want to say something. Thank you, Ajahn Brahm. No? Thank you. I really, I really glad that I come to this, your explanation, okay? All the while, I, I know the same practice of light upon all the different steps, all these things. But it's now, you know, when you say this thing, I recall my earlier life. Yeah. I, can I say something? I went through this thing, you know, without knowing it, you know. Yeah. You, you're saying in, like a, starting with mindfulness and then the investigation of Dharma. I went through that and then the energy arose, you know. I remember, I just share, share with the yeah, people, you know. Strong, yes. When I first came into, into this thing, I read, oh, this is me, you know. Yeah. Normally what I do is, my younger time, uh, in the evening I'll go out, you know, or oh, meet with friends, drinking yeah. or whatever, you know. So knowing this thing, I'd sort of, I'd come back from work, have my shower, this thing, maybe just go for half an hour to the shop and come back. I just want to read the Dharma. And I read the Dharma from 8 to, to, to even 1 o'clock in the morning. And the next day I work, I feel fresh. You know, it's the, the, the energy is down there. And that is the, I'll just share with you the, the, uh, the, the an energy, this thing. And then the, yeah, yeah. that's the, the, the uh, energy. Uh, and then there's the, 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 the trunk, the, the, the tranquility, you know? Yeah, I feel tranquil, yeah. yeah. I just, I read Dharma and it makes me feel oh, so tranquil. And then the, you see the joy arise, yes. The joy didn't arise in me, you know? And then the, what, yeah. All this I've been through, through. It's only now that I realize I went through. Good. Just now, right now, now. Excellent. You know, well, I'm, I'm, I'm just sharing people that yeah. you might not realize it, you know? I just, re and this happened Good Lord, many years ago, 20, 30 years ago, Indeed. 20 years ago. And only now I, I read, I, I, I be, read the seven factors and all these things. Now that, oh, I've been through this. That, that strong energy arose in me, you know. Yeah. That I keep reading, this is me and this is, this is, this is me. And I keep reading, reading, reading. 
till one o'clock, you know, and like <laughs> I have the small, I call my Bible, a book which I I, I wrote down too, you know, I wrote okay, down, yes, yeah. and there's books I have. I, luckily, I underline them if with, with me. Yeah, good. Yeah. I, have, I underline underline all all the, all these things, and you just don't feel like doing other thing already. This thing, yeah, and the joy, tranquility, all arise now. That I'm not this thing you don't boast, Ajam Ram. No, indeed, yes. You don't. I'm just sharing to you, and only now I realize this. Thank you. you. Excellent. Yeah. My joy. Yes. Okay. The Chang. Oh, over here first. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Hi, Ajam. Hi. Hi. I was just wondering about your explanation of the Dharma. Yes. And if it's about causation, like how we arrive at this point and see it clearly, like the origin. Yes. But how is that idea reconciled with the concept of sort of presence in the now? Okay, you have a presence in the now, so you're very clear on the phenomena or the experience which you have in this moment. But then to really understand it, you have to understand what caused it, where it came from. So, so you do do that also uh, going backwards. You know, it has to be backwards in time. Even that dependent origination. So often that people, they tried to force dependent origination into just basically one moment or one life. And that is just so stupid, it cannot be done. If you look at the definitions which the Buddha gave, how he wanted to be explained, it has to be going back to previous lives. Otherwise it just doesn't work. I won't go into depth there, but the way the words are used, the explanations given, there's no other possibility there. And so you realize the Buddha wanted you to find out why. Where did you come from? Remember Ajahn Chah, I started to put a bit of lightness into this. It's heavy and beautiful, but whenever someone asked him where, where he came from, what country he came from, so where, where, where were you born? Where did you come from? He'd always answer, I come from my mummy's tummy. He didn't say he came from Thailand. He said he came from his mother's tummy. A different way of looking at it. Not the place, but the place where the body originated from. So explorations of like origin is important. Yes, indeed. Because otherwise we get totally just confused. Once we know the causes, sometimes some of the causes which stop our development of the path are seen. And once they are seen, you can let them go, when you know how dangerous they are. One of those, which you know, I've made so much um, noise about, if you like, said so often, is the idea of striving. You know, striving, people think, if you're going to be a meditator, especially a monk, you have to work so hard and strive to get stillness in your mind, to get deep meditations. And that's just totally the opposite. And when you see that for yourself, you see those causes. 
where does a very still, beautiful, powerful, blissful mind come from? And it comes not from striving, but from letting go, renouncing, not doing anything. Your sense of self, which does all that stuff, starting to vanish. When you see that for yourself, you understand how you can get into deep meditation and the obstacles. You teach them that as much as you can to others. And sometimes some of them get it. And they have some beautiful meditations. And I said, I never did anything. Said, yes, well done. Thank you. Oh, Cheng, yeah. I just want to uh, put Eddie's uh, uh, comment, Eddie's uh, experience yes. of uh, pity and tranquility back into this, trying to understand the framework of this uh, Anapanasati all yeah. the way to uh, Dharma investigation yes. to Ananda. If, let's say, uh, we go along with Eddie understanding. I mean, we didn't, we didn't experience, but we go along with his experience. He, the, the mind state at that time will be, have be followed through, will be going to unworthy pity. He will have gone into, based on earlier on, we study, we, we read about the f uh, four, four focus on mindfulness. Correct. His, his body, his reading, his dharma, everything. Yeah. He will have now gone into, uh, flow into, uh, uh, Piti Sukha of first yeah. jhana, second jhana. I'm just trying to frame, the understand this, complete these four focus of mindfulness and then yeah. four focus of mindfulness, complete the seven factor of enlightenment. I just want to understand yes. whether his experience can apply in this way. Yes. <laughs> that it, it, that, you see, most people say that, oh, I, I, I investigate Dharma, but if you really, there's a difference between how do you know you're investigating Dharma? investigating dharma and how do you know that you are, like you earlier said, is a hindrance if you investigate when you don't have a, have a mindfulness that is a steady mindfulness? Yeah. How do you know these two differences? The difference is, you know, is when you're exploring dharma, it's, it's, just, it's, it's beyond the words, no concepts. Yeah, but then what Eddie is saying, I could then rule out that his is not in the, this framework of seven no, enlightenment Yeah. A lot of times it just, you know, you know that sometimes it's hard to explain exactly what we yeah. mean. <laughs> sorry, Ajahn Brahm, sorry, it was here. You see, for me, look, this is, this is from my heart, you know? Exactly. It's coming from my heart, the, 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 the thing, you know? Looking back all these things, okay, the invention of the Dharma and all this, the George Changpuli, they come very simultaneously, you know? Yeah. Without you knowing, you know, not, uh, then you feel tranquil, you know? Tranquil, and then like a, oh maybe I'm, uh, look I'm not trying to say for myself please you know I'm yes not for, no no, and then you said the bliss you know when I have the meditation here I do feel bliss a jump yes I feel I'm more I'm it's peaceful before yes. Dhamma it was hell life for me was hell <laughs> you know all okay. the late, it was hell I tell you this the thing you know and then this peace is like a Bliss, you know, but of course yeah. this bliss is not like deep as you experience a thing, you know. Yeah. No, you know, no, there's a lot more to go through this thing, you know. No, I, yeah. I, I see through all. 
And yeah. then they, they go in, in, in sequence like a, that time you won't realize, you don't realize it. Exactly. You don't realize it. Only when you look back, oh yes, I've been through that. The thing, uh, Something triggered that. Yeah, yeah, this yeah, is yeah. how you experience things. So, we haven't so finished with these seven enlightenment factors yet because uh, there's some more to come which will probably answer some of the questions which people have. Yeah. Remember Ajahn Brahm? The highest is equal. Remember last week I talked about equanimity? Yes, yeah. You know, I said I use equanimity to solve problem. Yeah. When there's a problem, this thing, and I use equanimity, this thing. Highest is equanimity. Maybe, I don't know. That's, that's, you know it, Ajahn Brahm? Yeah, it's coming up soon. Yeah, equanimity to solve the problem. When there's a problem, you know, you, you don't, you know, there's a problem, you know, you feeling. You apply the mind when you're. When you you have all this equanimity, you know it's just equanimity. You know there's nothing to worry about all these things. Good. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. If you can realize that, then you can solve a lot of. Okay, you know, I'm going to talk about this soon. So when you have experienced unworldly joy, your body becomes tranquil, your mind becomes tranquil, both become tranquil. On whatever occasion, the body and the mind become tranquil and you experience joy. On that occasion, the tranquility, enlightenment factor is aroused in you and you develop it. And by development, it comes through fulfillment in you. That's number five. There's two to go, six and seven. When your body is tranquil and you feel pleasure in the mind, the mind becomes still. You know the word for still we're using here? It's called samadhi. So often again people think samadhi is concentration. Concentration is what you do and it tires you out after a while. Instead of calling it um, concentration, stillness. That's far more accurate and also it opens up huge amounts of understanding about what meditation is and how it works. The mind becomes still and joyful. We're not talking about stillness in some sort of trance where you're not really aware of what's going on. It's not like you're half asleep inside. You've never been more aware. You really are alive. On whatever occasion the mind becomes still and joyful. On that occasion, the stillness enlightenment factor is aroused in you and you develop it and by development it comes to fulfillment in you. I know that sometimes when people translate, I would say mistranslate the word samadhi as concentration, they develop this idea of momentary concentration, kanika samadhi which word does not exist in the Tipitaka? The Buddha never said that word, Kanika Samadhi. And when you understand that Samadhi means stillness, and you think of momentary stillness, every one of you is momentary still. <laughs> to move you need a bit of time. So that's such a dodgy word. I'm saying is how I feel on that. But stillness, the more still you are, the longer it lasts. That's why if any of you do 
experience the jhana, there's a, the states of uh, deep samadhi, you'll find it lasts a long time. The deeper the jhana, the more hours. It's not as if you decide to beat your personal best. You can't do otherwise. You sit there and you just, you'd no idea of what time is. You just blissed out for long periods of time. And hours go past and when you come out afterwards, you haven't got a clue how long. Look at the clock, oh the clock must have stopped or something. This is what happens, the deeper the samadhi, the more hours. So when you really get into this, you have to be careful to let your friends know, otherwise you miss so many appointments. I'm going to say that little um, anecdote again about that Vietnamese monk over in Sydney somewhere who started a meditation retreat. Many of you have been on nine-day meditation retreats. They started in Friday evening, just half an hour meditation, but after half an hour he hadn't come out of his meditation. He was still sitting there. He never gave a talk. And if that was you, just like all these Vietnamese, they just come on the retreat, they were tired. After an hour and a half sitting there, they decided to go to bed. They left the monk there. And the monk never moved for eight days. He never came out of his meditation, never went to the toilet, never took anything to drink, never ate. He just sat there <laughs> without moving at all. And then after the eight days, it was a nine-day retreat, he came out and the first thing he said, I apologize, I just got into a deep meditation, I didn't do my duties to teach you. I'm sorry. And of course everybody said, no, that was one of the most inspiring things they'd ever seen. And just that inspiration to realize these things actually happen, they're possible. So that was worth so many talks. So this is what happens when you're really still. That stillness means like, almost like time stops. And the antidote to that, the reason why yeah, people seeing that's good, but you don't allow that to happen because if ever any one of you, got, you know, you can feel that you're going to get into a really nice deep state of meditation. What you do is you tell yourself, make a determination, I must come out by 8.30 or something to give the talk. A simple thing like that, a simple resolution. I must come out at this time, I must come out at this time, I must come out at this time. Not with force, but just to remind the mind, to condition it. And then it, that's when you come out. Otherwise you can stay in there for a long time. Anyway, by development that stillness becomes fulfilled in you. And the next part, well, Eddie was uh, talking about as well. You observe such a still mind with equanimity. On whatever occasion you observe with equanimity the still mind, and you develop it, and by developing it, it comes to fulfillment in you. Now the word upeka, equanimity, is not a bad word, a bad translation, but literally it means looking upon, 
you know, Pekka and Umi basically upon it. Like I'm just looking upon this computer. It's not my computer. I don't care if it blows up. But you look upon it with a sense of just looking, not owning. That kind of equanimity also means you're looking upon that stillness, never thinking you own it. It's not yours. It's just a, what you might call like a phenomena, you know, it's causes, why it came up, but you never think it's yours. You never would ever would regard any deep meditation experience or any deep insights as personal possessions. That is why, just to say it clearly, that you know, you don't put medals on monks and nuns. You know, the Buddhist Society of Western Australia will not give you a medal f for being confirmed that you have experienced first jhana or second jhana or third. You don't put a medal on you or a couple of stripes on your sleeve to say that you're a stream winner or a once return or whatever. All of those things are not personal possessions. It's when things are vanishing. That's why it would never ever feel appropriate to give you a certificate if you were fully enlightened. So you can put that on your wall so to confirm you are a meditation teacher. You've been confirmed <coughs> as enlightened by the BSWA. Such a thing is ridiculous. But anyway, so you observe that still mind with equanimity, just looking on. The other part of equanimity which I like is especially when you use that uh, to describe what it feels like, is like the word contentment. There's another word for contentment which has got stuck to the word santuti. But nevertheless, upeka, it is not just a cold term. It's beautifully delightful. And people say, well, I thought opaca was where pity and sukha have ended, such as in the fourth jhana. But still, the Buddha sometimes calls that experience of upeka, upeka sukha, <laughs> another type of happiness. The happiness of just Again, contentment. What a Zen monk would probably call the happiness of no happiness, the joy of no joy, whatever it is you call it, but it's still delightful. Anyway, that is how the four focuses of mindfulness developed and cultivated complete the seven enlightenment factors. And those seven enlightenment factors, they make you enlightened. Not you enlightened, but that's it. Okay, another question from someone? There we go. Hi. You were talking about um, striving, striving to meditate. Now surely uh, that would be different for each individual. I know when I started to meditate, I needed to deal with my own issues first. 
you know, which may have been routine behavior, a lack of love, and some jealousy, whatever have you, and going to the very cause of this before I would get that peace of mind and before I would get that stillness. Now, that also took some doing because from my point of view, it's no good pushing those emotions and those feelings down and not dealing with them because how are you going to be enlightened unless you deal with those first? Okay, the answer to that is uh, that you don't suppress them, you don't deal with them, you let them go. Letting something go is not suppression. Suppression is where you like hide it under the mat or under the carpet. Letting go is you realize you don't own that and you can let it disappear. And I've had some, years ago I used to have these wonderful discussions with uh, psychologists and they said, no, 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 you can't just let something go, you have to deal with it. And I kept my point that no, you don't. It's amazing just how many things you can let go of. They hurt you, it's a problem for you. But when you are sitting meditation, you get to that cushion, you sit on it. It's amazing how much of that you can just let disappear. It doesn't come into your mind. It's like it's not you. But from a certain point of view, I think by dealing with these emotions and by dealing with these feelings, you understand others better as well. And you can see where they are coming from and they may have the same issues as you did. So unless you kind of get to the cause of it, which I found was just a perceived lack of love somewhere, and, and then it all makes sense. Yes, but sometimes when there are issues in one's life, sometimes it's almost impossible to deal with every one of them. So sometimes you may take up one or two of those issues if you wish, and you find you can let them go. And you have a much more powerful way of dealing with incredibly powerful emotional blockages. I was just mentioning this today to someone who came to lunch because last week I went to their house to do a quick blessing and just opposite their house there's this other gentleman I know, he was the he's the father-in-law of uh, Sumaita Galhainagi now he's a proct proctologist, the one who sticks the cameras up your backside to find out what's wrong with you but his wife, uh, she was a psychologist and she was working in that group called Assets. I often mention them, Australian Society for the Survivors of Torture and Trauma. And these are uh, uh, people, men and women, who have been tortured overseas and they get sort of refugee migrant status because Basically, they've gone through such unspeakable pain. Multiple rapes, beatings, the worst possible torture, and 
the fact that that still happens nowadays is just really so sad. And they come to a place like Australia and physically they're free, emotionally they're still in those torture chambers in some Middle East government underground or wherever it is. And the thing which works the best for them. And I, when I heard this, I was just, wow, inspired me to the max, was the opening the door of your heart. And many of you have heard me talk about this before, I'll just go over it briefly. Where when you feel safe, when you feel you're ready, you can't force this. You sit there, close your eyes, and imagine two big doors in your heart region, just imagination. Open those doors and you see outside of you those little girls, little boys who are so badly treated. You can't understand why the other people did that to you. I mean, really painful, really humiliating. And each one of those little people have been outside your heart for such a long time. And you imagine like a staircase going down. I'm doing this very quickly. You invite each one of those people in to your heart. What you said was correct, you give them love, acceptance, embracing no matter what happened to you, the door of my heart's open to you coming. And with that coming in, is not trying to solve those problems, but embracing them. And one by one they come in, a reconciliation. I'll never keep you out of my heart ever again. And it's kind of traumatic, but amazingly healing. And this, what comes to my mind, giving a talk about that one evening, there's one of those people from some eastern country, and she was just over here and telling about what she went through. And there was a little, one of the boys here was listening. I just, wow, that's terrible what happened to you. And she responded with, you've got no right to say that. That's who I am. And she was incredibly at peace with what happened to her. It wasn't a problem for her anymore. And to see that, and that was extreme sort of abuse. Wow. She was like a hero. I don't know, you have like people apparently in these movies, Superwoman or something. And this is like a real Superwoman. You couldn't fly through the air or anything, but just her wisdom and kindness was incredible. That's how to deal with the past. Don't deal with it to try and get rid of it. Deal with it to let it in. But to add to that, that because I teach monks how to meditate, I always mention to them the striving stops when you get on the cushion. You have to strive to get the time, a comfortable place, a healthy body to sit down there and uh, shut your eyes. Once you've gone the cushion, please stop striving. Doesn't matter what's happening to you. That's the fastest and most effective way. And once you have that stillness in the mind, then you can really help others.
Jing, okay. Yeah. How, I mean, that you just cover from point yeah. one to point seven, and we are covering these seven factors of enlightenment under the heading of Nibbana through Anapasati. Yes. Am I getting right that at this point seven, we are actually trying to, uh, trying to experience first jhana to fourth jhana? Or yeah. not really at all? This is number six. No, at the, uh, let's see, we have, you, you already recovered. This seventh, the point one to point seven, and it's called seventh enlightenment factor. Correct, yes. Does it mean that, and then this section is under Nimana through Anapanasati. I'm trying to understand, so are, you, are we learning that if you can follow what the instruction all the way from breathing in, breathing out, step 116, go to uh, complete the four focus of mindfulness, and now complete this one, the person, the meditator, will have a steady mindfulness, and the meditator by now will have first to four jhana. Am I trying to understand? Yeah, that's not bad understanding, but the seven factors of enlightenment is independent of you know um, uh, four focuses of mindfulness, independent of you know, anapana sati. It stands by itself. This is just a standard description of what the qualities that you do have to develop to experience enlightenment. This is not just said over in this Anapanasati Sutta. So, just go back to uh, uh, um, Eddie's experience. Yeah. Eddie, I'm just not, not that I'm questioning your experience. I know his experience is real and it's yeah. true and he's trying to share yeah. with us. So go back to his experience of his tranquility, his, his pity and his tranquility. Does it mean that, um, that you're now telling me that this seventh factor of enlightenment is uh, independent uh, teaching itself? Yes. Or, uh, exper uh, yes. Uh, uh, framework. Correct. Does that mean a person who has so much re reading the right dharma and getting so much inspiration, he will have been able to break through to uh, with the support of the seclusion, yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, uh, fading away, cessation, and language. That's what will happen if a person like Eddie's experience, kind of general experience, will go all the way that way. That sort of experience can go further and go. Well, where is the jhana in this experience then? In number six. When your body is tranquil, you feel pleasure in the mind, the mind becomes still, enters samadhi. That sixth factor is referring to the jhana. So that, I just saw it, because it's, it's just go back to an, an, uh, an, another the question about this dharma and phenomenon. Yeah. Exploration of dharma or, or exploration. I remember you were saying that sometimes there's a difference between doing this thing right and getting all your mental energy drained up by doing too much yes, investigation. Yes, How do we differentiate all this then? If this is a, uh, if we are using just seven factors of en en enlightenment, and we're not talking about using coming the breath and all this, and we're just using this Indeed. That sometimes the breath is very helpful, but it's not necessary. There's other ways of developing deep meditation and jhanas. But the point is here, 
that this is actually saying these enlightenment factors, uh, which come up again and again and again. It's like, uh, this is how Ajahn Bamali just mentioned it to me once, and it's very accurate. It's like the enemies to enlightenment are the five hindrances. And then when the five hindrances disappear, these seven enlightenment factors arise. You know, the mindfulness becomes strong, and when the mindfulness becomes strong, you also get these other, the investigation or exploration, sorry, of the Dhamma, understanding what Dhamma is. Why? Why was I got mindfulness? What is mindfulness? And you know, how has it come about? And you're exploring things, you know, why does this energy come from? Where does joy come from? And it's you know, unworldly joy, they call it niramisa. And when the unworldly joy comes up, and that is the cause for your body to be tranquil. It's one of the sayings which I, when I read it, it made an impression on me, so I always remembered it. And that is, uh, Suki no chitang samadhi yati. Please excuse me for using Pali. I learned Pali and it's easy for me to remember. From happiness, the mind becomes still. Not from dukkha. So over here, we are developing unworldly joy, tranquility, pleasure with the mind. And that gives rise to the stillness of jhana. These are totally pleasant states. And sometimes you just, you can't stop it. It's just a cause and effect thing happens. You're meditating or something's inspired you. I always like saying about uh, inspiration. So many times you'd hear a brilliant Dhamma talk and I'd just learn how to sit down somewhere quiet, close my eyes, and you just couldn't stop getting into deep meditation. This whole th process just happens, you can't resist it. That's where the deep meditations come from, from a very joyful, inspired mind. Yeah, okay, yeah. And there may be some questions on the internet, so it's a nice point to stop the actual, the text, and have it for questions and answers now. So, question, Who's first? You got the microphone, yeah. Um, Ajahn, exploring the dharmas, exploring the dharmas, exploring the dharmas, exploring to me has a sense of movement to it. Store sense of movement. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah. So, how do you explore with stillness? Exploring, you haven't got to stillness yet. Right, but exploring has a sense of movement to it. It is going inwards, yes. Remember that simile which I keep evoking of the thousand-petaled lotus? To go deeper inside, you don't move at all. You just develop that kindness and mindfulness. And those two, the warmth and light of the sun, open up the lotus. It becomes a natural opening. In order to explore the stick, you don't do anything, you just watch it and you see deeper into it. So a lot of times, it feels like you're going into something, 
but that's the only movement which can be really perceived. Did that explain it to you? Okay. Yes. Ajahn, I thought I might just mention that just recently I've started dedicating a day a week as my meditation day. And I know I'm lucky to have the time, but I've, for many, many years I've had the yeah. time and didn't do this. Yes. And now I am doing it. I can't tell you how different it, it will you know, but maybe yeah. others don't know, how different it is to an ordinary day when you're fitting your meditation into all those other things. Yes. And then when you've got this whole day spreading out in front of you, where there's no reason to do anything else. So you don't do anything else. And my whole meditation changed completely. And I wasn't tired. And I wasn't falling asleep. <laughs> and it really works. And then you can, so I, I listen to one of your talks, and yeah. then I go for a walking meditation, then I sit yeah. again. And it can go on all day. Yeah. And it's just so different. And I know others haven't got time to do that, but you might have time to come along to the Thursdays here at the, um, at the center where they're doing a whole day meditation, aren't they? They're doing Thursdays, is that oh, right? Yeah. I've seen it on the website. It's once a month. So once, once a month. month. Yeah, okay. It's good, yeah. Yes. That's I think I recommend that if you haven't done it and you don't know how you'd go doing a whole day on your own. Oh. It'd be nice to have the support if you came here and did it. It'd be great. So I know that sometimes when people have a family and they have work, there's so much stuff to do. It's one thing to even aspire towards, you know, when you do retire. You have time, a nice quiet place, beautiful thing to do. Doing stuff six days a week, that's enough. That's nice that you're getting some time and the benefits from meditation, well done. Okay, I'll do a couple of questions on the, uh, the tablet. From Sydney, how to have faith, believe in the insights and direct experiences from exploring Dhamma? The inner experience that could be described as transcendental. Thank you, Ajahn. How to have confidence in them. Sometimes, you know, you check to see if that's how the Buddha taught. But even more important than that, what do those insights or experiences, what do they actually do to you? If they make you more tense, if they make you more concerned, worried, afraid, then they cannot be going in the right way. It's one of the things which the Buddha said uh, first to his barber, Upali, and then to his foster mother, uh, Mahapajapati, saying that whatever leads to things like peace, you know, tranquility, just some joy, just some uh, things disappearing and vanishing to Nibbana, you can know that those things are the teachings of the Buddha, those are the Dhamma, by what they do, by their consequences. 
if they make you more afraid, more arrogant, more possessive, then that can't be the right insights. The next question from Sri Lanka. How to stay in Noble Eightfold Path consistently without falling? First of all, allow yourself to fall and make mistakes sometimes. It's not you, because otherwise I'm not being realistic. Sometimes you will make mistakes sometimes. But then after a while, you learn that following the Eightfold Path leads to far more peace and tranquility and joy. And sometimes you wonder, what do I want to do anything else for? So it becomes a natural development of this path. You don't do it through force. It becomes just a natural, obvious abiding for you. And as you go deeper and deeper, when you understand these things, that don't you, wouldn't you like to have unworldly joy and energy just understand things. When it starts to happen, you know, it becomes very, again, satisfying for your spiritual path. And you're not a miserable little person, you're a very joyful person. To me that's always going to be the sign that someone is practicing and that they're practicing in the correct way, by the smile on their face not by the wisdom which they can tell you. Next question. Dharma helped me during the toughest moments of life, but how to overcome the areas where I still find it difficult to let go? Today is my birthday. Time flies and I feel I won't manage to become a mother. After a while, when you explore such dhammas, why does that worry you? You don't, you might not manage to become a mother. If that's really important, you can always do that in your next life if you really want to. But after a while, it's not so important. Where did that desire to be a mother come from? You trace it back, the Dharma of that. A lot of time it's like cultural force. Parents saying, are you pregnant yet? You know, you're getting on in life, you don't want to live on, be on the shelf. Say, no, it's lovely to be on the shelf. Shelves are very wonderful places to live on. You don't need to, you know, always feel you have to have a kid. There's not people in the world already. Today's your birthday, so happy birthday to you. Time flies, yes. And don't fear anything. On your birthday, I give you the gift of a day without fear. Enjoy this moment. The last question here, would Santuti translate to be satisfied? You know, sometimes that to translate a word, you know, you just almost like analyze it. You know, Santuti, what does that actually really mean? Like by cutting up the word, but then trying to analyze the word by cutting it up into its parts is not very accurate and can be quite misleading. I do cryptic crosswords. It's a little thing I like to keep my brain going strong. And there's one crossword, together. What does together mean? 
you analyze it means to get her. <laughs> so you can see you can see it's a totally wrong translation. <laughs> but then what you do with Santuti, you look at how the Buddha used that word. And so you can see that somebody, someone experienced Santuti. And from those experiences, you build up an understanding of what that experience is. When you know that experience, then you can find words to describe it. Like even samadhi, stillness. You can't look at the word samadhi and actually to get that from the, the word itself, to try and analyze it into its parts. But when you start meditating and realize what works, what doesn't work, and what it feels like. What does it feel like to, to have metta? Have metta given to you? What does that feel like? And I always trust those translations which, you know, are coming from the context and from experience more than anything else. You know, what is pity and sukha? The joy of meditation. Once you start to experience and feel that, then you understand what it means. And you understand just how delicious it is. Santuti satisfied, yeah. But it means more than that. That's why, you know, these days, as Buddhism and meditation becomes more common, more well-known, there are some words you just don't want to find, trans find translations for. Even a word like a jhana. It's amazing just how many weird translations there are for that word. And, you know, they're not wrong, but they just miss out too much. So such an important idea and concept that I don't want to give it a name. Jhanas is good enough. Dharma is good enough. You don't need to kind of um, try and find a translation which doesn't fit. English language, like Chinese, like Thai, like Polish, is always going to be restricted. And most of it is built up by the history of those communities living in that land, speaking that tongue. And sometimes you don't have the experience you know, to explain you know, what a jhana is. So just use the word jhana. Just use the word dhamma. We actually create new words, which I think is wonderful. Many years ago, because I wrote books and they were quite popular, I managed to get a new word, and it was, it was like Hopi, H-O-P-E-Y. Don't worry, be Hopi. <laughs> I don't think it really sort of stuck in the word of, you know, the new language words, but it was getting close. I think now, and maybe kindfulness might eventually become a word in its own right. So, you know, language does change, and we do add new words to language. There are some words which the originals are just too good to actually to want to change them or want to try and translate them. Anyway, I hope that makes sense to you all. So now, because this was a sutta class,
if we can do the Arahang Sammasambuddho, because that's out of respect to this is word of the Buddha. It's, I'll move this around. To finish off, it's almost 4.30.